Please remain standing as we read from the Word this morning. Pastor Jerry is going to lead us through Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32. If you have your Bibles available, please follow with us. We also have the words on the screen. Again, that's Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life or of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, excuse me, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, I have been given the responsibility to talk to you about church governance, about elders and deacons and the congregation and how they work together. And uh, this morning, before I actually get into that te the text that I've chosen as a vehicle for carrying this message, I, uh, I want to give us all a little bit of a tutorial about church governance. You know, um, several years ago, actually about 20, almost 25 years ago, I started here, and ours was a small church, much smaller than it is now, and we had what was a typical form of governance for uh, Baptist churches at that time. And the first 10 years were a struggle, to say the least, because always the challenge would come out any, in any decision that we made. Um, they don't have the right, or he doesn't have the right to do that. And the question of who has the authority to lead the church was always there. Around um, 2001, it just came to a crescendo. There was a, so much turmoil. There was actually a big business meeting called, and, and uh, there, was a, there was even a, a lady who was invited to vote on one side uh, who hadn't been in the church for 20 years. And it was just more of an expression of that old typical form of governance. After that day, the deacons that were there at that time decided we really needed to look into the church governance more clearly, more carefully. And we did. And we studied a book by Alexander Strout called Recovering Biblical Eldership. 
And uh, we chose from among ourselves the first group of elders. And that was not the silver bullet, but almost. You can almost go to that time in our church's history when I've been here and see a, a, a radical change in peace and the way we have moved. And, and yet, um, I find that with migratory, migratory evangelicals and migratory Baptists especially, that people come to the churches with presuppositions that are rather rigid. They have in their minds what ought to be and how things ought to work. And, the, you know, the Bible is pretty specific about these things. And, and so we've had people come and join and then later on just be terribly upset and say, how could six or seven or five men uh, be the ones who lead the church? Right? Why are we not making these decisions in a business meeting kind of thing? So every now and then it's really good to go back over these things. Um, the, the biblical model for church governance is a plurality of elders. And Jeff spoke to that a little bit this morning. Elders are those who are given the task of leading, feeding, guiding, uh, correcting, comforting, and they do it with the Word of God. And, and the plurality of elders is, is a normal, natural thing according to the Scriptures. Now, we Baptists would not, we would think it weird if you had only one deacon, wouldn't we? We just assume that there are many deacons. And yet, when it comes to the elders, even using that word seems weird. I had a man, when I was doing my study on this, I did a dissertation on on uh, studying Baptist churches that adopt plural elder-led form of, of church governance. And uh, a, a man who was the head of uh, many, many churches, actually the head of the Dallas Baptist Association, he said, well, son, that's just not Baptist. Well, it really was, but uh, who, who cares, really? I mean, I mean, is it biblical? That's what matters. And there's always a in the Bible, always a plurality of elders, and then there are deacons who serve. That's what the word means. And then there's the congregation is to be informed and involved, responsible and accountable, and yet they're still supposed to be led authoritatively, unapologetically. We make the case for deacons. I've seen a, uh, Pastor Jim Henry from First Baptist Orlando put together years and years ago this, this training module for Baptist churches and, he, he, and it was all about what the deacons were supposed to do. And, and you know, when you think about biblical support validating what your claims are, you have only three little passages for deacons. You've got this, this one verse where Paul says to the elders and the deacons, which identifies the deacon ministry as a distinct office. You have the qualifications of the deacons, but those follow those for the elders. They're juxtaposed to them. And then you have this, what we assume were, the, this is a narrative of the very first deacons, those who were chosen from among the church to serve tables, to help those who were being disenfranchised, those non-Hebrew speaking widows who were destitute. And that's it. I mean, that's all you've got in the Bible about uh, deacons. But with regard to elders, you've got just a, a, a pile of passages that uh, speak to the plurality of the elders, that speak to the qualifications of the elders, and speak to their function. There's so many there, you almost have to put them in two piles because one pile won't hold them all. I mean, there's, there's more on uh, elder, the elder ministry than there is on baptism than there is on the Lord's Supper in the Bible. It's not an obscure thing. Now, you, you hear people like this gentleman challenge me. say, well, that's just not Baptist, son. You know, I, I, I long for those days when people can refer to me as son. All the people who can legitimately, legitimately refer to me as son, they've all died. 
you know. <sighs> That's ridiculous. Anyway, here's a quote for you. It's worthy of particular attention that each church had a plurality of elders and that although there was a difference in their respective department of service, there was a perfect equality of rank among them. Guess who said that? The very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then in our first formal Baptist, Southern Baptist statement of faith, we had this statement. The scriptural offices are two, you know, they're bishops or elders, interchangeable words, and they're deacons, and that's all there is to it. And that was uh, written by uh, E.Y. Mullins in 1925. And so, and then we think about, well, what about the term pastor? Okay, you're, Brother Jerry, you're bringing out this emphasis on elder, and we know there's another word that's used as overseer. What about the term pastor? Well, how many times in the New Testament does it occur referring to the office of the in the church held by a single person. Actually, not even once. Not even once. It's referred to, it's referring to an office, pastor teachers, but even there it's in the plural. So what Jeff was saying this morning is really important. Um, uh, unfortunately, most Baptist churches, large and small, have one guy that they look to. And in the smaller churches, the, the, they treat their deacons as if they were the elders and then, unfortunately, and, and uh, consequently, they t- treat their pastor as if he were just an employee. And then they look at the congregation as if there's this thing of simple democratic congregationalism where everybody does what's right in his own eyes. And all three try to make decisions. Nobody knew, knows who has the biblical authority to make decisions. So then they have uh, business meetings that start off like someone dropping the puck in a hockey game. You know, it's just a... Uh, everybody just trying to get their, their way. And actually, in smaller Baptist churches, the ones get their way are the greatest hallway campaigners. So the, the terms that are used primarily in the New Testament for elder um, are elder and overseer, this one office, and, and then what they do is they shepherd. That's what the word pastor uh, means in the verb form. And so Paul, in our passage this morning, he sends to Ephesus for the elders, elders plural. For the elders, plural, he didn't call a church business meeting. He didn't gather the deacons. He called for the elders because they are the ones who will give an account for what they've done with the flock. And he tells them, you know, to, uh, after using that word elder, he tells them to, be, to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Those words are used interchangeably. The overseer idea comes out of the Greek world. It speaks about management. And the elder idea comes out of the Hebrew world that speaks about maturity and age, and, and uh, those are combined in the ministry of pastoring. Elders are not deacons, and deacons are not elders. Now, if you're going to be an elder, you at least have to have the qualifications of being a deacon. But the opposite is not necessarily true. You can be a deacon and be perfectly qualified to be a deacon, and yet be unqualified to be an elder because you don't have that that calling to teach and the ability and the gifting to teach. So you have there the qualifications for the elders that are set side by side with qualifications for the deacons, showing that they are distinct and different offices. And it's never legitimate to treat your deacons as if they were elders because you'll end up treating your pastor as if he were an employee and you'll assume that he's a solo guy. So the elder ministry involves authoritative feeding and leading, instruction and oversight, protection and correction, encouragement and comfort. It is an authoritative ministry. The authority is God's, but it is delegated to these men. 
to shepherd the sheep. The deacon ministry is a non-authoritative function, and it involves the management of administrative tasks. The deacon ministry facilitates the elder ministry. The elder ministry is not quite possible without the deacons. The deacons have to take care of facilities and families and finances and things like that. And they liberate the elder ministry, the elders, to give attention to the word and to prayer and shepherding the flock and, and without being preoccupied with those administrative issues. And I'm telling you, it's really hard. It's, it's hard to get away from the old model of, of Baptist deacons being elders. And, and even we elders, when we come together every now and then, we find ourselves working on something that's a deacon issue. We have to say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what we're supposed to be working on. Let's get back to the elder issue. And we have to remind ourselves to do that. So biblical eldership is a distinct office. It's qualified men, and they have shared oversight in their ministry. And uh, they have authority. It's real authority. They, they're told, that this is imperative, you know, be a shepherd is an imperative. It's, it's go out there and do the work of a shepherd. And it's as much an imperative as the Great Commission. It's as strong of an imperative as do not fear or any of the other imperatives. This is an imperative. Be shepherds of God's flock. And yet we, we don't want to be abusive. We don't want to be run roughshod over people or be disrespectful. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. They're the two words, pastor, and the idea of pastoring and oversight are put together with near synonyms. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Don't be greedy for money, or eager to, but eager to serve. And he tells them, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you. That we're going to see that idea, too, of being the flock is not ours. It belongs to God, and it's entrusted to us, and it's a, a precious trust. It's a treasure. It's what Christ is focused on on this earth, and he says you, the way you do this shepherding is by being examples to the flock. We'll deal with that some more. And anyway, the Holy Spirit has made these guys shepherds if they are real elders, if they haven't just chosen or grab the position for themselves and usurp the authority. The Holy Spirit has done this in them, put it in their heart, given them the desire for that office. And, and the church is told even to obey their leaders. That's pretty strong, isn't it? To say to the church, you, you need to obey your leaders. That, that's one of the problems of uh, church governance in America is we, we, we don't deliberately do this, but we tend to bring our citizenship and our relationship with the American government and the three branches of government. We tend to impose that on the church governance in our concept of it. And so we see ourselves as independent and righteously rebellious and nobody's going to tell us what to do and the idea of a lord or a king or anybody that has authority under him is just repugnant to us. And yet Hebrews tells the church, obey your leaders. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. The, that word there for keeping watch over you is, has, carries with it the idea of losing sleep. You know, it's a metaphor, but it, it's real. I mean, there's been plenty of times when I've counted the revolutions on the ceiling fan just laying on my bed thinking, oh my, 
Oh my. About the church. They'll give an account. You know, everybody will give an account for the Lord. We'll all give an account, even as believers. We'll give an account for what we've done in the flesh, our works, whether good or bad. But there is a sense in which elders will give an account that's a stricter evaluation. I mean, that's why James says, let not many of you be teachers. Who were the teachers? They were the elders because they will give a stricter account. There's a sense in which there will be the judgment of the elders that will be... uh, a little bit uh, more fearful than that of the regular believer. So that brings me to the message today. You know, Paul is at the completion of his ministry and he has great concerns. And You know, if your heart is really into the ministry, if you really love Christ church, when you get to the end of your ministry, uh, you have concerns, you have fears. You just... You know, it's, it's why you say, okay, here it is. This, this, is, this is a ministry. Now take, take this young man. No, no, wait a minute. No, no, wait a minute. And you just want to pull it back. No, yeah, okay, here, here it is, son. You, no, you can't. Oh, do you hear me use that word? I, I referred to them as son, didn't I? <laughs> that means I'm about to die. <laughs> There's this thing about passing the... the Shepherding staff is what we're about doing. And it's really important. And part of the, one of the reasons why we haven't been so successful at it is we, we, we were delayed in doing it. We weren't, uh, we weren't doing it regularly enough. When you, if you wait too long to pass the mantle of leadership to the younger generation, it's just, it's just too damaging because you hung on to it too much. And Paul is about to leave, and he's doing kind of like what Jesus did when he was about to leave, bringing his disciples together and talking to them, even before taking the Lord's Supper, the, initiating the Lord's Supper. You know, he's passing this to them. And so he gathers the elders, and he talks about it. He says, now from, uh, he says, uh, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I lived among you the whole time. That's going to be an interesting thing. You think about a pastor living in the parsonage that's somewhere monastically located, separated from the people, and you expect the pastor to kind of keep his distance or those pastors to keep their distance from the people because, you know, they are men of God. And they've got to just keep themselves from those hoi polloi out there, those regular people. But no, Paul talks about, you know, I lived among you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials that happened to me throughout, through the plots of the Jews. That's pretty interesting about Paul. He doesn't give them the the right act. doesn't say, okay, I'm about to leave. Now sit down, boys. I'm going to tell you how it is. And you better and you make sure you do this and you do that. No, he talks about, look, you... Look, you know, I've never lorded it over you. I lived among you, and I served the Lord, and and it wasn't easy, and there were a lot of tears and a lot of humility. But you do remember how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. This is part of the example. It's what he's putting on them. This is is what you've got to focus on, and I'm so thankful for our men who've come here. They are so excellent in focusing on the Word, being um, very concerned that they know what it says. 
and what it means and how it applies and passing that on to us. And that's what Paul says. Remember, I, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He wasn't preaching just to hear himself speak. He wasn't preaching just to prove himself to be an excellent theologian. But he wanted to give to them that which helped them in their sanctification, that which was profitable. And he said, I was teaching you in public and from house to house. That's what they did. They were always, that's what he was, he was always teaching. And he's always testifying of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is an ongoing thing. It's not just something that you do at salvation. And now he talks to them about the inevitable. The inevitable is that the old guy is going to leave. The inevitable is that the old guy is going to die. The inevitable is there will be a change. There must be a change. And so he says, and now I'm going to Jerusalem. This is the last hurrah. He knows he's going to be arrested. He, and he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. Would that we all were constantly constrained by the Spirit. God working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. He says, you know, I don't know all of it. God hasn't given me a blueprint. He hasn't laid it all out and given a chart showing me a timeline or anything like that. He says, I don't know uh, all that's going to happen there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city saying that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Two is a wonderful thing about his example is that he didn't do what he did for his own glor glorification, his own uh, honor. He did what he did for the glory of God and the good of the people. And he said, what I want to do is finish my course. God had put him on it. God had set him on it. In the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, he was a true apostle who functioned like a genuine elder and he knew that his responsibility was to testify to the, to the gospel of the grace of God. I would put in a word there to you to say that what our responsibility is is to teach people who they are in union with Christ so that they can deal with the flesh, be filled with the Spirit, live by what God is doing in them and through them. If we just tell people what they ought to do, what they ought to be, and we don't teach them how, the gospel of the grace of God. We're just moralizing and putting people under the law. We've got to constantly teach them who they are, and that's what we do. And then, you know, Paul starts talking about this completion. He says, and now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. That's another twist on his teaching, is proclaiming the kingdom. It's not just pray the prayer and really mean it. Not just pray the prayer and really mean it and get baptized. It's not just pray the prayer and really mean it get baptized and get into a, a, a discipleship navigator's course or something like that. This is teaching them who Jesus is. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When he was raised from the dead, he was declared to be the Lord in power. And when he ascended into the heavenlies, he was seated on the right hand of the Father. He is the, king, the reigning king even now. And we must teach people that, that Christ is reigning now and that he's the king over their lives. He wanted to complete his ministry. He wanted to finish it. He wanted it to be fulfilled. He says, therefore, I test you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. Kind of like an Ezekiel reference, you know, man of God, you know, uh, if, you, if you don't warn them, if you don't tell them, their blood will be on your hands. He says, for I did not, 
I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God and all of it. That's why we do preach verse by verse. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. That's why we try not to leave anything out. I tried to leave something out the other day. I said, come on, Jeff. You know, we get to the end of Ephesians, and you've got me preaching this, uh, this goodbye thing, you know, this last few verses. And he wouldn't back up. He said, no, you, you preach it, old man. <laughs> he didn't say that, but it sounded good, didn't it? It's all valuable, he said. Don't leave that out. I had, I had all of my sermons. I'd preached all the way through Ephesians. I had every pericope developed, all the Greek, all the, you know, uh, good commentaries. I'd typed it out. I mean, I, I could just, just blow the dust off of it, get up and preach it, and be excited about it. But there's one little, I'm three, four verses I left out. You know, greet so-and-so and make sure you do this. Make sure. And I got the assignment. I'm glad you did that, Jeff. It honors the Lord. It honors His Word. It's what we ought to do. And, uh, you know, I cannot say with Paul that I have absolutely fulfilled all that God has given me to do, completed my ministry with the excellence of the apostle. But I, I want that to be true. And with every breath I have, I, I want to do right and to really finish well. But, you know, we all have these concerns, and I certainly do. Paul did. He, he just uh, could imagine what was going to happen, and certainly it did with many of the churches. He was concerned about the shepherds, you know. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and of the flock. Pay attention to yourselves. One of the dangerous things about this this what became tradition, this, this solo pastor, where you have one pastor, and he's all by himself, and he goes and looks in the mirror, and he says, hey, you're doing fine. Um, if all of us who've been in the ministry for any period of time have had friends, colleagues, who've crashed and burned morally and spiritually, who have disqualified themselves from ministry, and, and, and we, if, unless we have brothers, fellow elders, and, and we're making eye contact with one another, and we're saying, you know, I think you're off a little bit biblically there, or I think you're being a little bit harsh there, maybe you're exploiting, or maybe you're being selfish, or maybe this or that. Unless we have those kinds of conversations, we're all vulnerable to the devil and the flesh and the world, and we could all crash and burn spiritually. And so that's why he says, pay special attention to yourselves. And he's not just talking about one person going in the mirror and evaluating himself. That certainly is important. We do that with the, our own personal Bible study and prayer every day. But when he says yourselves, he makes them identify with one another. You are a, a group within the church. And part of your function as elders is to watch out over one another, over yourselves as a group before you minister to the flock. And he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You know, the use, Paul's use of prepositions there seems awfully strange to me because I would think that placing someone in this office, you would say, over whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. But you see, the 
difficult thing about being an elder is that we're sheep just like the sheep that we lead. And we're part of them. And we're not above them. And we're not separated from them. We mingle with them. You know, you can't tell the sheep here from the elders in this picture. He says, watch after yourselves in whom God has made you overseers. And there's the exchange of that word, overseer, with elder. He called the elders and tells them they're to be overseers. And then he uses this other word in the verb form to shepherd the church of God. That's interesting. It makes it seem like a stewardship, doesn't it? You look at those sheep and you think, well, that's not my herd. As pastors, sometimes we'll catch our people talking about our work and we'll say, well, my church or my congregation. No, it's not your church, not your congregation. It's your stewardship that's entrusted to you. And it's pretty valuable. The Bible says that he, God, obtained it with his blood. What does a, what's a, the worth of a congregation? What is the cost of a congregation? Well, it's pretty high from God's perspective. He gave his own son to die on the cross. He gave his blood. He gave his life in exchange for our redemption. And so we need to be pretty careful. We need to take it pretty seriously, men. All of us elders, we're shepherding God's flock that he cares about. And I, I love reminding people of this. You know, we think about God up in heaven and what does he see? We certainly know that he doesn't, he's not worried about Tony Romo or the Dallas Cowboys. He's not worried about McKinney or Texas or the United States. He's not worried about the economy. He's not worried about the ecology. He's not worried about world politics. God isn't afraid of North Korea or Iran, or Russia. God isn't thinking, how is this going to play out? What am I going to have to do to make it work? God focuses on that which is precious to him, that which he purchased with the blood of his son. God's focus is Christ's bride on this earth. And so we, we as shepherds, we've got to watch after ourselves. We've got to watch after this precious flock, the sheep. But, you know, we have to watch out for those charlatans. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, and they're not going to spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Twisted things. Not other things, not new things. Twisted things. Taking the gospel and turning it on its head, making grace out to be something that you earn, or trying to put people back under the Mosaic law and telling them they, they, they relate to God on the basis of their obedience, or just claiming that Jesus was a man who became a God, or he was the brother of Lucifer as an angel, he's just an angel, or any number of things. They take the gospel and they contort it and they do it uh, with the motive of getting folks to pull away and follow them. Because that's kind of spiritual death to get them to pull away from the church, to pull away from the teaching of the truth, pull away from communion, pull away from the fellowship, to follow them in something that glorifies them and, and uh, just flatters them. So what Paul does is he tells him, he says, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I didn't cease to admonish you, every one of you with tears, saying, stick to the truth, don't, don't play like this couldn't happen to you. If you think that you're, you stand, be careful lest you fall. And what he does is he commits them, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There's this commending, this giving over. And, and really, uh, you know what? I'm going to tell you something that I, I mean this with, with all my heart. Uh, you, you've, God has brought some great guys here. Now, I'll, tell, I'll say about them what Will Barber said about me when I was applying for Dallas Seminary. He got the reference form and he filled it out and sent it in. He said, now, Jerry, I want you to know I didn't give you all tens. I left you some room to grow. And we all look at you guys and we know you, you don't even think yourselves to be all tens to have arrived. We know that you, there, there are experiences that you haven't have, mainly pain in, in, to the degree that you will have it. I, I think that what Jesus said about his own mother that a, a sword will pierce her side. I could say that to you. A, a sword will pierce your side. You will hurt. And it'll be good for you. It'll, it'll just make you more and more sober-minded. But I think all of us as a church would say to, to you guys that we've hired to, our elders that are already here, there's no hope for you not crashing and burning unless we commit you to the Lord and His sovereignty and to the Word of His grace. Not just to the Word, but to the Word of His grace. It is God who is at work in you, both the will and do your good pleasure. He is the one who will prevent your demise. He will be the one that will keep you from violating the Hippocratic Oath and doing harm, as Tim and I were talking about this morning. It is God. And so I kind of, I like doing this, you know, I, I think I could speak on behalf of the whole congregation and say about you new guys and the elders that are here, that we commit you to God and we commit you to the word of his grace. We trust him to be at work in you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing in your church and Lord, we are tempted every now and then to try to make things happen, try, and then when things do happen, to think that we were the cause for the effect. But we know theologically that we can never cause someone to be born again. We can never cause the supernatural to happen. We are dependent on you, just as we've already said here this morning. It's, we're utterly dependent on you as Tim just kept praying we are dependent on you but Lord we can commit ourselves to you and we can commit our leaders to you and we can be given over to your word Lord just to read it pray over it and then tomorrow, take up where we left off. Lord, you know, every now and then we refer to this as a, a little church. But it's always felt huge to me because the responsibility is so great. And we acknowledge it, Lord.
Give us your grace, Father. As elders, just give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.